I think it's difficult to acknowledge Jesus as king of my life because you just allow life to get in the way. Um, I think it's not an intentional thing, but I can find myself with four kids and work and doing these kinds of things, not allowing Jesus to have his rightful place because you allow kind of the day-to-day, -day, mundane, everyday things to just kind of pile up and kind of occupy and take center stage over everything else. I would like to be king of my life. <laughs> And that's what it comes down to. I am a perfectionist. Um, I like to be in control of things. So whether it's my kids or my plans or my health, um, I wanna be able to decide what's best. And so it's really hard when things don't go my way to trust that Jesus is the king and that he's the one that actually has things in control. And so instead I get stressed or I get anxious because I'm not making Jesus the king of my life. All right, well, I so appreciate Gil and Amy. You'll see some other folks over the next few weeks that basically these are some teaser videos about Christmas Eve. And this year, this focus that we have is the idea of the king is born. And what does that look like? And what these folks are answering is that question, why is it difficult, why is it challenging to allow, to respond to Jesus as king, as the one who is in authority over my life? And so each of these three weeks, as we lead up to our Christmas Eve services, you're gonna hear some things. And I know that if you are parents of, of kids these guys' ages, the Medina's kids' ages, you can relate. You can relate in lots of ways to what was shared, whether you're in that life stage and demographic or not, but especially if you are, you're going, oh yeah, that's the world I live in. And it's not always necessarily this thing of, God, I want control. Sometimes it's just, God, I'm so busy, I'm so diffused. It's hard to remember who has control of my life. So I wanna remind you, our Christmas Eve services on Friday, December the 24th, one, three, five o'clock, would love for you to be praying about not only which service to come to, but more importantly, who you're gonna bring. So be thinking about who could you invite to be a part of this year as we just kind of celebrate the reality of Jesus is king. He's been born, he's come to us. And in the passage even that Landon read today, that's where we're gonna be. So if you have a Bible today, if you wanna open it to Isaiah chapter nine, we're gonna kind of push further into this idea of just looking, what does it mean for Jesus to be king and how, what is my response, what that ought that to look like. If you didn't get some notes on your way in, they're in the back, or if you want to pull it up on our app, go to resources, sermon notes, and you can follow along digitally that way as well. Well, my name is Todd Arnett, and the lead pastor here at Trinity. I want to welcome you today, those of you that are here indoors, those of you out in the pavilion, and those of you watching online. If you're a guest with us today, I want to especially welcome you. Happy Christmas. We're so glad that you're with us this time of year, especially, and grateful that you would make this a part of your weekend, so we're glad Glad that you're here. One thought before we dive in today, last week, last Sunday, difficult day as we say goodbye to Chris and Carissa. They did make it safely to Tennessee, so we're grateful for that. And what we had said last week and even earlier in our midweek video is that we want to be able to bless them as they kind of move into a much bigger space. The girls will have a yard to play in, and so whether it be furniture for their home or whether it be stuff out in the, the yard to play with, we just want to be able to take an offering up and be able to send that to them. So if you'd like to contribute to that, we'll do that all throughout the month of December, just on your check, just in the memo, or you can do it online on the memo, just write Dowdy's 
and 100% of that's going to go to them. We just love to bless them well as they get started out. Well, I'm really glad you're here with us today, and, and what we're doing is we keep looking through the lens of Jesus' arrival, his advent, through the lens of him being king, and the king is born, he has come. We think about all the pomp and all the circumstance when a king might be born today, a prince in this case, and, and, and the, the country thereof goes nuts, there's all this anticipation, there's all this hoopla. Well, we realize this king, who wasn't just a human king, he was the king of kings, came in the most dire of circumstances, born literally in a barn, and, and in that, not only was he misunderstood from the very beginning, only it was smelly shepherds who had an idea of who this king really might be at the pronouncement of angels. But all throughout his life in ministry, he would be constantly misunderstood and not understood and recognized for the fact that he was this long-awaited Messiah king that God had promised. Along with that, what we see is that this same Jesus, though, he is not proud he is not looking at us down his nose about how we didn't understand, but instead loves and accepts us right in the middle of our mess, the mess he was born into and the mess he calls us from. So as we dive in today, I'm excited to keep looking through this lens. Today, the kind of approach we're going to take is the idea that this king had been promised, this king had been foretold that he was going to come. And of all the different prophecies we could look at, we could go all the way back to Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world and God said to this first couple that had blown it, which we have just continued to replicate again and again and again, that he was going to send a snake crusher, someone who's going to come and who was going to reverse the curse of Genesis 3. We could go all the way back to there and all the different prophecies in between, but we're going to focus on where your Bible's open to in Isaiah chapter 9 today. And of all that we could look at, we're going to look at this promise that a son has been born, that there has been this one who's been given to be this Messiah King. So we're gonna dive into that. And what I wanna remind you of is we're gonna look not only at that part of that promise, but we're gonna to see towards the end where Lana was reading that this kingdom was gonna be established forever. And so in the same way that this prophecy was given literally hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, it was given with the goal of having people leaning forward, waiting expectantly well, the reality is, is that that was true of Jesus' first arrival. It's also true of his second. That's where we're at. And we're looking, leaning forward, expectedly awaiting when he's going to return. And so that's the posture we want to see this passage through as well today. So I have a now what statement for you today. What, what are we supposed to walk away with and be processing, be applying this week? Here it is on the screen and in your notes. Because God is forever faithful Encourage yourself with his promises that are still yet to be fulfilled. Because God's been so faithful to fulfill the promises he's already made, encourage yourself with the fact that there are still those that are being waiting, waiting to be fulfilled. Well, I want to do an odd thing today. I want to actually look at our passage by beginning in the middle. And I want to begin with the part that you know. And the reason that you know it is primarily due to a composer by the name of Handel. Frederick George, I was going to get his name wrong. I just want to make sure. Some of you would know that, and you'd be mad at me afterwards. <laughs> Frederick George Handel has this great 
amazing thing that we sing at Christmas time, and part of it are these exact words. So I could read them with you, or we could let amazing instrumentalists and a choir sing them for us. Take a watch. go. That's it. That's a lot better than we could have just read it, right? Pretty good. I want to apologize for the crazy eyes of the lady at the very beginning. I was like, whoa, she is looking at me and I'm scared. Take a look. Let's read it together in your notes up on the screen. Read it out loud with me from Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are great words, and they are definitely do that kind of incredible just beauty of Handel's writing, his music. And, and what's interesting is I want to see today not just these words that we rightly should know and rightly should celebrate, but I want to see a little bit contextually of where they come. And they were written to the, the people of Judah in the southern kingdom. They were written to them as they had been living in a place for a long time of half-hearted worship. Living for a place in a long time of disregarding the covenantal vow that they had made to Yahweh. Living their own way on their own terms. And in the midst of that, we're going to see not only these words of promise, we're going to also see promised consequences, promised judgment. It's actually interesting that as we see this and we see these people, we're going to see both when we know the timeline, we're going to see the great-grandchildren that these words first came to through the prophet Messiah or for the prophet Isaiah, we're going to be carted off in exile to Babylon. Three generations from those hearing the words the first time were going to be moved out of the land and ultimately the beginning of the end. But yet in that, fast forward 600 more years to 700 years out, Jesus would be born in a manger. 
So these words of promise, both of consequence and judgment, but of hope, ultimate everlasting hope, are what we're going to find today in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at this king who's described in verse 6. It's a male authority figure was going to be provided to Isaiah's people for unto us, unto us has been given. And he would bear the responsibility, bear the load of caring for and leading the people. Now, I know when we hear that phrase, the government will be upon his shoulders, we're thinking through that lens of a political lens. But I want to tell you, in my study this last week, coming across some different writings, there was a Hebrew scholar who said that's actually an idiom from a Jewish wedding. Listen, listen to the quote. It's in your notes up on the screen. Then the bridegroom will remove the veil from the bride's face and throw it over his shoulder. So try to get the word picture in your mind. They're there at this wedding, and her veil is coming off, but it's going onto his shoulder. In this gesture, the groom is making a public declaration that the government of his bride, the responsibility of caring for her, will be upon his shoulder. In other words, it will be his honor and privilege to now be her protector and provider. He will protect her heart and provide all the love and affection that God created her to desire, just as God has placed within us the need for love and affection from him, which he has promised to provide. I believe that is what Isaiah 9, 6 is conveying to us, not that Messiah will have a difficult time with the governments of the earth, but that he will throw the veil of his bride over his shoulder signifying that he will be the protector and provider of his bride, which is us and his church. By dying on a cross and rising from the dead, he will defeat the sin that keeps us from consummating our marriage to him, and he will remove that veil from our face, and he will throw it over his shoulder, signifying that he will protect our hearts and love us for all eternity. Yea, God, Man, I love that understanding. It was rich as I was reading it. Look in your notes. Maybe another way of saying it might be that this king will shoulder the responsibility of leading his kingdom like a groom assumes a responsibility for his bride. Powerful. Four titles Isaiah prophesies, foretells that this king will be like. First it says he is this wise counselor this wonderful counselor, someone who understands the complexities of the people that he's going to lead and leads them well. He's the, this idea of this God king, okay, the mighty God. There is a deity, if if there's ever been a misunderstanding up until now in terms of God laying the way, paving the way for what Messiah was gonna be, Isaiah clears it up, he will be very God. You would never say that about David or Solomon. You'd never say that about any human king, that the king would be mighty God. That'd be completely blasphemous. Jesus, however, the Messiah king, was going to be God. That's wild. That should have just shaken them. Like, what? It goes on to say everlasting father, and when we think of that concept, we think of not only the might of God, but this encouraging, this coaching nature of a father whose need his children have will never be outgrown, everlasting. And the fact that he's the prince of peace, peace will be the evidence of his leadership and the people that he governs. 
One of my favorite Rich Mullins lyric just sticks in my head often in a beautiful song of just vulnerability. He writes these words, you have been my king of glory. Would you be my prince of peace? This is what Messiah was promised to be through the pen, through the words, through the voice of Isaiah. A king like had never been seen before. Very God himself would reign on the earth with that kind of God might. But yet in a way that was like the the warmth and the encouragement of a father to his sons and daughters. And it would usher in peace. That is incredible. That is some kind of king. And that's the kind of king that Yahweh promised to his people. And and I want you to understand that just as they could not begin to fathom all that that meant, we see that lived out in the Gospels, in the life of Jesus, people are consistently blown away. They're consistently confused as to who Jesus is claiming to be because they're going, "I, I I don't have a box for this. I don't have a category for who you say you are. Yet Yahweh had given that all throughout the former covenant to say that's exactly who he's gonna be. So Jesus so often said this prophecy that you read about, it was talking about me. In the same way that they didn't have a capacity to take in fully who Jesus was and what he came to do, so we often miss what God still wants to do, what his desire is to bless, what his desire is to continue to meet needs and so much more in our lives. We just kind of keep having this underwhelming view of him. And he's told us different. Look in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him, this is Paul's prayer for that local group of believers. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. You can't dream the size of what God wants to do. It's beyond your comprehension. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And then again in 1 Corinthians chapter two, however, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, what we've never been able to even dream up, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Things we could never get our head and heart around enough, big enough. The only way we can get there is by God making them clear to us through the very indwelling spirit of God. And I say this, why do we make such a big deal about the magnitude of God's design, about the magnitude of God's promise? It's to help us from lowballing him. It's amazing how we've all learned to do this. It's amazing how we've all learned to bring expectations down so we won't continue to be disappointed. And I will say, in a lot of different human environments and different circumstances you find yourself in, that's not bad counsel. The problem is when you apply that to God. When you begin lowballing him because you're like, well, I don't wanna put this on God and think it could happen, and then it doesn't. It's what I learned to do very early in life. I am so old, there used to be a brick and mortar store called Toys R Us. <laughs> ancient, ancient. You can just imagine if you're young. And I remember my parents foolishly would take us to this store before Christmas. And I remember I have a younger brother, and we would walk 
the rows, literally walk the rows of Toys R Us. And it wasn't the first time we did it, but it might have been the second or the third, I figured something out. Here was my brother walking down the rows. Want it, 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 want it. And my parents couldn't even keep up if they had tried to write down all the stuff. And I noticed that they weren't doing that. And I kind of glanced over and realized after the th- of 30 things he would have said, they would have written down one. Oh, that's probably what we'll get. And so guess what I started doing? I didn't walk down the row and start going, want it, want it, want it, want it. Instead, I just said, if I really want something, I should actually make it one of a few choices because then there's a really good chance I'll get that. So while my brother was naming off 87 things he wanted from Toys R Us, I gave my parents four. Underneath that Christmas tree, Those are four things that I'd ask for. You see, we figure out how to lowball expectations and manipulate to get what we want. We figure that out in life pretty well. I will tell you today, when you start applying that to your relationship with Jesus, you are absolutely missing the point because he is not contained by any limitation that your parents had. He is not contained by any limitation that medicine has. He is not contained by any limitation of other people who have let you down before. He's not contained by any of that. What no eye has seen, what no mind has even conceived, these are the things that God has in store for those who love him. So the reality is, as I say this to say, let's not get in that trap again this year of lowballing the things that God wants to do in and through your life and just kind of going that easy route. Now, these are the words that you know well from Isaiah chapter nine. Let's do this. Let's actually find what we often don't do. Let's see the context. Let's go to the words above. Chapter nine, verse one. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's, in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Verses one through five set the context for the words you and I know so well. Interestingly, it begins with the word nevertheless. And nevertheless is a word of transition, right? You don't just walk up to somebody brand new in the conversation. Nevertheless, they'd go, what earlier conversation were you having with yourself? Because I don't know what you're talking about. It's always meant to transition thoughts. So then we have to go, okay, well, if if that thought is where chapter nine is headed, what has preceded it in chapter eight? To a group of people who God was judging for going after spiritual mediums, diviners, 
The judgment he lays down at the end of Isaiah 8, verse 22, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. So these are the words that precede verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1. There is judgment coming over these people for living apart from God's design. Nevertheless, however, there's light that's going to come into the darkness, light that's going to come and break through the gloom. And it's interesting, the people upon whom this light is going to dawn, it's the people who are generally despised. This is Isaiah writing in the lower kingdom, the southern kingdom, but he's writing about those in the northern kingdom around the area of Galilee. Take a look at this map. This will help you a little bit related to where the tribes were dispersed. So if you look at the circle you see there's a body right off to the west of that. So the orange and like the purplish color. Those are the two regions that Isaiah says, but this group of people normally despised, they're actually going to be exalted. And it's going to be to them that a son is going to be born. Now, isn't it interesting how many times when you read the gospel account, and you read about um, these Jewish leaders who constantly were confused about Jesus, constantly couldn't come to that place of accepting by faith who he claimed to be. And how often they would say, well, who's this guy from Nazareth? He's a Samaritan. And the guy's just, he doesn't fit the mold. He doesn't fit the prophecies at all. This is exactly what that prophecy should have been that caused them to go, wait a second. Out of Nazareth, out of Galilee, is where this promise begins, that a child is going to be born, that this Messiah King is going to come to us. Why are we not paying attention to that? It's as though the first part of Isaiah 9 didn't exist for them when Jesus would come and talk about how he was the Messiah they should have been anticipating. Notice how the people will respond when they hear this good news They'll respond like when the harvest has come in. In this case, a harvest they didn't have to plant. A harvest brought to them. Or, or when they're the victors in battle and there's the spoils of war. That's the kind of response these people are going to have. There's going to be rejoicing that's based or rooted in blessing. Tangible gifts that came either through the providential care of a wonderful crop or through the mighty working of God to overthrow another people. Either way... That's going to be a great sense of rejoicing and joy. Isaiah references Midian's defeat. It's a narrative found in Numbers 31. If you're taking notes, just write down that chapter, Numbers 31. And in my Bible, when I was doing research this week, it's titled by a human author, Vengeance on the Midianites. Whoa. That's something you never want to be on the other side of, is the vengeance of God and his people. But this chapter details how Israel was to carry out judgment, God's judgment, against the nation of Midian for what Midian had done previously, if you're taking notes, in Numbers 25. So Numbers 25 is the first account, and then Numbers 31 is the judgment on Midian for what they did. And what they did, interestingly enough, they didn't come out to battle and come try to destroy Israel from the front. They actually came and enticed them to follow other gods. Israel has not even made it into the promised land yet. They're not established. They're simply wandering from 
uh, Egypt on their way there. And in that time, they sent people in among, actually in this case, women, to entice men to become their wives and then to lead them away. There was a total thoughtfulness. It wasn't random. There was an intentionality. This is how we'll bring God's people down. We'll make them worship our gods. God gets really mad about Israel's sway towards the Midianite gods and as a result sends a plague among Israel that kills 24,000 Israelites because of the way that they had wandered from Yahweh. That's Numbers 25. Numbers 31, God says, we're going to go back and we're going to judge you. I'm going to use you to judge Midian for what they did to you and how they enticed you away. And that's what Numbers 31 is all about. So Isaiah is referencing a very real thing that happened, a battle that was won, spoils that were given. And he's saying it's going to be like that. There's going to be that kind of joy and that kind of excitement. Look back, by the way, interesting in the wording, Numbers 25.3, this is way back, this is Moses. So Israel yoked themselves, made this conscious connection of now a commitment. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Did you notice when we were reading in Isaiah 9, Isaiah says that Yahweh shattered the yoke shattered that thing that was connecting the people of Israel to false gods. So Isaiah is very intentional with his verbiage. And he finishes this section with a description of the people of Israel no longer needing dirty boots and bloody garments, the kind that would be used in war, but they become fuel for the fire. Those are what we burn now because we're gonna be a people who live in peace. This section would have read like an incredible reversal. Nevertheless, God has prescribed judgment on his people for the way they've broken covenant and wandered away, but nevertheless, God is still providing hope. This darkness will replace with a hope-filled light. And it communicated everything but the how. In the first five verses, that's all great, God, but how? Verse six. For unto us a child is born. Messiah King was going to be the solution to the problem. So if these are the words before the passage that we know well in, in Isaiah 9, let's actually look at the words that follow. Chapter 9, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh Almighty will accomplish this. So it's obvious that this promised leader isn't just going to be a king. He'll be the king from the line of Judah. He'll sit on David's throne. And he will rule in such a way that it won't be like another king. Not only will he not be human in that sense of being frail and broken, where even the best kings that Judah ever had failed, like every human being. He's the God king, but he won't just rule now, he'll rule through eternity. You know, we looked at something, we've been studying, if you're new to us at Trinity, we've been studying the gospel of John, and we were just in John chapter 12 a few weeks ago. And we came upon something as we were looking at this chapter that we noticed this actually was a very fair concern or confusion that the people had. 
Jesus is talking. He's talking initially to some Greek seekers, and then I think the audience kind of grows a little bit, and he's sharing these powerful things about the need to, to die to self in order that life might grow, in order that others might be blessed. In the middle of all that, the people pick up on that phrase of being buried in the ground. They know what that means. And then their question is, how can you say, if you say you're a Messiah, how can you say you're going to die? The prophecies say that Messiah King will live forever. And I felt like that was actually a very understandable confusion, a very real thing of going, we're following, we're looking You're asking us to test what you're saying against the former covenant. We're doing that. We see an eternal king. You're talking about dying. But the wild thing that we know is they didn't have a box for what Jesus was going to do because he was going to say, I am going to lay down my life to atone for your and the world's sin. I'm going to die but I'm gonna be raised from the dead to reign eternally. I'm going to do both. Die and live forever. That's what Messiah King was all about. They didn't have a category for that. How could he do both? Jesus said, just watch. Because it would just be in a matter of days from John chapter 12 that Jesus would do exactly that. And what will establish and uphold this kingdom that Messiah King's going to usher in is that of justice and rightness. Two things that are absolutely crucial for a kingdom to be the kind that you want to be a part of, you're glad to be a part of. Its walls secure you rather than keep you in, but also the kind of kingdom that can perpetuate throughout all time. How could the people have a confidence that this would take place? How does Yahweh finish that? Because the zeal, the passion, I love this phrase, the resolute drive of Yahweh was going to ensure that these things would happen and that these things would be accomplished. And we know this side of the cross, that's exactly what happened. So simple question, should the people who heard these words Isaiah's initial audience, should these words give them a sense, not just of hope, but of confidence, of faith? God, you're going to be good to do what you said you'd do all the way back at the fall. Should that give them a sense of confidence? And even if it's not in my lifetime, God, you say you're going to do it. 700 years later, he did it. Maybe a better question rather than wondering about what that should have done for them, what does this do for you? Meaning, as you consider the things that God has promised you in this life, things like the fact that when you confess your sins, he forgives you and doesn't hold them over your head like you might do to yourself, that you might do to others. That he promises that he will never leave or forsake you that he promises that if you entrust yourself to him and seek his kingdom first, everything else will be taken care of. Your needs will be met. If these are the things he's promised you and the things that you're seeing him be faithful for in this life, what should that do in terms of this sense of deep confidence of what God's gonna do in the next? 
God's faithfulness is not only something to look forward to, God's faithfulness is something to deeply internalize and hold on to now. But God, you said X, and the reason I can believe you is not only what you've told me in your, in your word, but what I've seen in my life because you've done Y. God's fulfilled faithfulness is meant to do that in us. In your notes, does your understanding and confidence in the character and faithfulness of God provide you the active hope necessary? Does it provide you the active hope necessary to not become overwhelmed by the challenges in and around your life, but resolute, resolute in your belief that God will be faithful for what he's promised to you? I hope so. That's the purpose of God's fulfilled prophecies is to give you confidence for what is yet unfulfilled. A couple of years ago, I read to you from what is one of my favorite children's books. If you're a parent of a little one and you don't own The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung, I would really encourage you as a great Christmas gift. And what this does, it literally reads the story of the gospel in 10 chapters. And what I want to do just today is I just want to read one of the chapters pertinent to what we've looked at today. You can look up on the screen and follow with me. By the way, best illustrations ever. Believe it or not, God's promises hadn't gone anywhere. In fact, God kept on making more promises all the time. God promised that the snake crusher, Abraham's child, Judah's lion, David's son, would come from Bethlehem. God promised he would be born of a virgin. God promised a messenger to prepare the way. God promised that the deliverer would die and live again and be a light to the nation. God promised lots of amazing things. But Israel was too busy disobeying God's commands and ignoring God's warnings to notice. God sent miraculous prophets like Elijah and Elisha and rebuking prophets like Amos and Malachi and sad prophets like Isaiah, and good news prophets like we've read today, like Isaiah. I'm sorry, probably I should have said like Jeremiah, I said something different. It doesn't matter which ones God sent or how many, the people never listened. Not for very long anyway. So one day it happened, God stopped sending the prophets. No more warnings, no more direction, no more word from the Lord, only silence for 400 years. God had sent prophets, priests, and kings. He had started out with Adam and started over with Noah. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave Moses the law. He sent Israel judges. He raised up deliverers. He conquered enemies. He provided sacrifices. He lived among his people in a tent and in a temple. God gave them every opportunity and 10,000 chances but still sin and the serpent seemed to be winning until all of a sudden they lost. Come back next week. <laughs> we'll continue in the book. One more time, our now what statement for this week. Because God is forever faithful, encourage yourself with his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who are in the middle, now but not yet. A people who have understood that you have fulfilled so many promises. The Messiah King that we talk about today is not someone that we anticipate for the first time. 
You did that 2,000 years ago. But it's a second arrival. It's a second advent that we lean forward expectantly awaiting. And God, sometimes we can just get lulled into this thinking that he's never going to come. We can get lulled into thinking that it's been generations before us. It'll be generations after. I don't even know what to do with that. But God, give us this great sense of hope. Give us this great sense of confidence in what you promised yet because of how faithful you've been to what you've already done. If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I've heard this Jesus thing. I, I've been at church at Christmas before. I, I kind of get it, born in a manger thing. But I've never responded to what this baby did at the cross and the empty tomb. I've never responded to this baby's lordship over my life, his kingly rule. And I'm ready to do that today. You can begin by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believing that Jesus is the only savior available. And C, choosing. Choosing to say today, Jesus, I put my faith, my confidence, my weight in you and what you've accomplished for me. You are that king. And I wanna live the rest of my life following your lead, following Jesus' example. You can pray that prayer right here, right now. And I pray that if you do today, would you tell someone? Because chances are there have been people praying for you for a long time that you would finally come to the place where you bend your knee and you submit and you say, Jesus, I need you. Father, we love you. Give us this week that kind of hope that leans forward to the promises you've yet to fulfill. We love you and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.